welcome to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. This is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. We just want to invite you to join us as we study God's story revealed through the Bible and seek to apply His truth to our modern life. Our hope is that through these teachings, you would experience life with Jesus as you experience life with us. Good morning, Resurrection Church. How's everyone doing this morning? How's everyone doing this morning? Good? Okay. I know the gray is out there, but it's nice to hear some excitement this morning as we come together to worship Jesus. Uh, No matter how you're feeling, I'm glad you're here. Uh, But anyways, my name is Pete Elliott. I'm the communication director here at Resurrection Church. I'm also an elder in training, and I'm excited to be with you today and and jump into God's word with you. Uh, Today, we're continuing our sermon series, Life with Jesus. We're going through the Gospel of John together, and the goal of this series is that we, uh, as a body, can connect personally with the story of Jesus, and that by hearing his story, by entering into the words he says, we get to experience life with Jesus. And so with that said, we're going to be in John 11, 45 through 57 today. So go ahead and open your Bibles there uh, while I pray for our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day you've given to us. We thank you um, so much for the grace that you pour out on us every single day. Uh, You remind us that you are a good God. The fact that we have breath in our lungs, the fact that, that we have food in our stomachs, Lord, you remind us that you take care of us every single day. Uh, and the same way that you take care of us uh, physically, Lord, reminds us that ultimately you take care of us uh, spiritually through your son, Jesus, that he came as the, as the sacrifice for our sins. And he gives us new life uh, in and through himself by the power of his spirit, so that way we can be in relationship with you. And so we thank you, God, for your, ma- your many graces. Uh, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, humans love a good sacrifice, huh? Anyone? Well, I feel like humans have always loved a good sacrifice. You know, I know that statement sounds a little bit jarring, but it's true. If you think about all of history, humans have loved the concept of one thing, one person dying for the many. Think about all the ancient religions out there, whether it was the Babylonians, whether it's the Greeks and the Romans, um, really any ancient civilization, even the Norsemen. There's this concept of sacrifice, that we are going to sacrifice these things to our God in order for the betterment of our society. One thing dies, I give up one thing so that way I can have a multitude of blessings. And I know even today as modern people, we're like, yeah, that's what all the ancient people believed. Uh, But we still believe it. We still love a good sacrifice. And the reason I can say that is because we still have mythologies. Our mythologies are just fictional movies. 
Uh, so, think about our fictional movies, our mythologies. Think of Boromir, you know, and Lord of the Rings. There's that scene where he is sacrificing himself as the hobbits run away, and he says to Aragorn at the end, I'd follow you, my king and my captain, into death anywhere. And it's just like, oh, wow, this one guy giving up himself for, uh, for the hobbits. Or then we have Iron Man. Sorry if this is a spoiler alert. Uh, Cam, our worship director, had not seen the last Avengers Endgame, so I actually spoiled Avengers Endgame for him. Uh, but, you know, Avengers Endgame, Iron Man sacrifices himself. He knows by saving the universe he has to, he has to sacrifice himself. Then we have, my wife is a Trekkie, uh, so Spock in Wrath of Khan, he gives up himself to save the lives of many. Uh, we got Terminator, right, in, uh, in Judgment Day. He essentially sacrifices himself and lowers himself with his thumbs up saying, I've rid the world of Skynet. And then we have Jack Dawson in Titanic. You know, this is probably... This is probably the most debated of all time, right? Was there room on the door? Was there not room on the door? We don't know. But still, Jack Dawson in romantic love sacrifices himself for Rose so that she can live. Um, and then even in our kids' mythologies, right? Man, Anna, she just takes the bullet for her sister Elsa, and by her dying, she gives life to all of Arendelle. I thought we were going to get more claps with all the young parents that we have in here because the, the, our kids' service, but I guess parents don't like Frozen that much anymore. Uh, they're all annoyed by it because of how many times they've watched it with their kids. Uh, all that to say, I think all of these stories, all of these fictional mythologies point to something deep within us as humans, that we acknowledge that there needs to be a great sacrifice to bring about the betterment and the good of people. And so today, as we dive into this text, John eleven forty five through 46, we are going to be discussing about how that deep longing in humanity to have one person save the many is truly found. It finds its purpose in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And how John in this text explicitly shows us how Jesus will be the once and for all sacrifice for all people. So let's go ahead and we're going to jump in and we're going to look at the text, verses 45 and 46. And before I read the verses, I want to remind everyone of the current context of where we're at in the story. So Jesus, over the last two weeks, he's been in Bethany and near Jerusalem, and he's just raised his best, one of his best friends, Lazarus, from the grave. He's made this dead man walk by simply speaking the words, come out, and Lazarus received life and came out of the tomb. And so Jesus has just done his greatest miracle, his greatest, largest sign of power to date. And what's happening is that his claims of being the Messiah are more than just verbal statements now. He's proving it with his actions. He's doing stronger and stronger miracles to prove that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And so I want to look now at the text that that's just what's happened. How do people respond? Let's, Let's look up in verses 45 and 46. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so in these first two verses, we see two different responses to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so last week, Pastor Drew shared the first reaction at the end of his sermon, and that that reaction was one of belief and worship. This was the response of the majority of the people. The majority of the people saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and their response was believing that he was the Messiah that Jesus was the promised one who was going to come and save Israel. And so the first response we see is belief. 
But then we see another response in the following verse, in verse 46. The second response, I had no other way of describing it, it's sinister tattletaling. And so certain Jews in the crowd, they act like spies, kind of like of an evil order, and they return to their authority figures, the Pharisees, to report on Jesus' miracle. So instead of being in awe that Jesus has just raised a dead man to life, their first thought was to rush off and tell their religious leaders. And so they are more scared of their religious elites than they are in love with Jesus. And I just was thinking about this. Like, could you imagine being in their shoes? Could you imagine doing what they did? Could you imagine seeing a dead man come to life? A man who'd been in the grave for four days comes to life and a whole town was weeping about his death. And then Jesus raises that man and the whole town changes from weeping to joy. And you see that and your first thought is, I need to go report this to our religious leaders. I was trying to think of a modern day example and I was like, that's kind of like you see someone save like a crying baby from a burning building and you're like, I'm going to go tell the cops he just trespassed on private property in order to do that. It just doesn't connect. It seems a little baffling or idiotic that they would, this would be their first reaction. But ultimately, the people who go and tell the Pharisees what Jesus just did, they're more concerned with the consequences of Jesus' power instead of just worshiping him as the Christ. So what do the religious leaders do when they hear this report? Let's look at verses 47 and 48. Uh, John writes, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so this is where we get into the politics of the situation Jesus is in. So in these verses, we see that the chief priests and the Pharisees call a council. Now, this council would be what we uh, know as the Sanhedrin. And so the, San, the name Sanhedrin in the Greek very simply just means sitting together. So it's this council. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 elders of Israel. And so it was composed of religious leaders. It was composed of priests. It was composed of lawyers, really. Uh, and they were the actual legal governing body over all of Israel. And so people who had cases would come before the Sanhedrin and their lower courts in order to hear their legal cases according to the law. And so really the Sanhedrin is kind of like the Supreme Court of our land and the chief priest is kind of like the chief justice or the high priest is kind of like the chief justice. And so when the Jews were conquered by Rome, the Sanhedrin was actually permitted to stay in power by the Roman government. And the Romans did this on purpose. The Romans had a philosophy of conquering within what was called the Pax Romana, that they would leave the ruling bodies of the people over their nations in order so that they wouldn't feel the need to uprise or rebel because they would still feel, oh, it's the same legal system that is over us. And so Rome purposely let the Sanhedrin of Israel stay in power because they didn't want, they wanted them to quell any uprisings against Caesar. And they wanted them to make sure that the people of Israel paid their taxes and that no one was upset with the Roman government. And so really the Sanhedrin became the Israelite or the, the legal branch for the Roman government to make sure no one went against them. And so really the Sanhedrin viewed Rome kind of like their sugar daddies in a sense, where it's like, 
we receive a bunch of money from you and we kind of have this disdain from you, but we like having our power and our prominence and our possessions come from you, so we'll do what you say. And so they were paid off all the time by Caesar to keep the Israelite people in check. And so in these verses, when we know that background, we can see that there's a general concern by the Jewish leaders, by the Sanhedrin, they do not want Rome to demolish their nation and their culture. But the question is, is why do they think this is going to happen? Why, why do the Jewish leaders think that Rome will come in because some people are following Jesus? Well, because part of the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were responsible for educating the youth of the nation. So they were responsible for education. And so they were the religious teachers and they taught people about the religion and the law. And so they have been teaching the general population for hundreds of years, for hundreds and hundreds of years, hey, there is going to be a Messiah that is coming who is going to save us from our oppressors. And so they were teaching the people that there will one day come a great servant of God who will be like a second Moses who will come and he'll free us from Rome. And so that's what the Jewish leaders were teaching themselves. They were teaching this to the general population. And so as Jesus is performing miracles and gathering large populations of people to follow him, the leaders are assuming that the general population, based off what they have taught them, are now saying Jesus is this Messiah. Jesus is this coming person who's going to free us from the Romans. Jesus is the Messiah who is going to liberate us from our oppressors. And so they're saying, oh, Rome is going to see this and they're going to think Jesus is leading a revolt. They're going to think Jesus is leading a revolution to oust Caesar and to take back independence for the nation of Israel. And so that's why the Jewish leaders are like, oh, Rome's going to come in and destroy us. It's because Jesus is going to be viewed as an antagonist of Caesar's. And so ultimately, the religious leaders don't want that to happen because if the, Ro the Romans come in and destroy, that means, oh, we're disbanded. And that means we lose our power, we lose our possessions, and we lose our prominence as the cultural elites of Israel. And so even though the Sanhedrin preached about the coming Messiah to the general population, even though they were the religious leaders who were leading everyone in worship on a regular basis, even though they saw the miracles of Jesus, they did not want a savior. They did not want the Messiah to come because if the Messiah come, came, it meant that they would lose their power, they would lose their possession, they would lose their prominence. And so they're choosing the things of the world in Rome over the salvation of God. And I just wonder how often we do the same thing. How often do we choose power, possessions, and prominence over Jesus? How often do we choose our own personal comfort over the salvation of God? But how does Caiaphas, the high priest, the chief justice, so to speak, respond to the concerns of his leaders? Let's look in verses 49 and 50. It reads, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, before we move on to Caiaphas' response, I want to make a quick note about Caiaphas and the office of high priest. So according to the Bible, the high priest was the mediator or the go-between between God 
and then God's people. And so the high priest was supposed to pray daily on behalf of the nation and beg God to be merciful towards the people. Uh, Hebrews 5 tells us that uh, the writer of Hebrews writes, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And so really this position in the Jewish law is a sacred position. It's supposed to be a holy man fixed on God, begging God for forgiveness for the sins of the people. So that's the point of the high priest. The high priest was to act actually more like a defense lawyer than a judge. He was supposed to be before God, begging God for mercy for the people. And so it's really interesting that John adds the phrase in verse 49, who was high priest that year. And so the phrase that year is specifically added to this text on purpose. Because you see in the Old Testament, the position of high priest was a lifetime appointment. If you were the high priest, until the day you died, you were the high priest. That was your calling. But here we see a phrase that John inserts that shows that that's not the case anymore. That the high priest's office is actually changing, not based off of lifetime appointment, but actually it's changing all the time. Because the, the office of high priest is now a political office. So the high priest is more like a political office people are vying for with the Romans. And so people are making back, backroom deals. People are making promises. I'll submit to you, Rome, if you make me the high priest. And so we see how this sacred position of high priest has been cheapened to a political office that people are vying for. And the Bible and historical records actually show this, right? They record that Caiaphas is not the high priest because of his spiritual wisdom and piety. Rather, he is the high priest because his father-in-law, a man named Annas, cut a deal with the Romans to put his son-in-law in power. And then the Bible also tells us, and historical records prove this, that Caiaphas was in power for 18 years, when the average high priest during that time was only in power for three years. Which means Caiaphas did everything Rome wanted. He stayed in power because he, he did whatever Rome wanted him to. And so that's who Caiaphas is. So when you think of Caiaphas, he's an imposter high priest. Instead of serving God and defending the people, he is serving Rome and using the people as a way for him to gain power. That's who Caiaphas is. So this imposter high priest, this Rome sympathizer, then speaks these words. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas, who's buddy-buddy with Rome, tells the Sanhedrin, don't worry. And then he rebukes them by literally telling them, you don't know anything. Because Jesus becoming popular works out to our interest. Because now we can go to Rome and we can offer Jesus for the nation. We can go and tell Rome, hey, we were keeping our ear to the ground. And this Jesus is saying that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And we want to exchange him and bring him to Caesar. So that way you'll kill him instead of destroying our nation. And so Caiaphas is making the point to the Sanhedrin that we can exchange Jesus to keep our prominence, our power, and our position. And after Caiaphas makes this point, John does something that he doesn't do a lot, but he actually stops the dialogue, he stops the story, and he makes a commentary. And this is what John writes. John writes in verses 51 and 52, if you look there, he, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation 
and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This statement is amazing. God took an imposter, high priest, he took a liar, and he used him to say some of the most true words ever spoken. So Caiaphas, unknown to himself, makes the case to the Sanhedrin. He makes the case to actually us now that Christ will be the sacrificial lamb of atonement for not only the nation of Israel, but also the whole world. So let me explain that a little bit more. Part of Caiaphas's role as high priest would be to sacrifice a spotless lamb for the nation of Israel each year during the Passover. Now, the Passover was the Jewish people's ultimate celebration. It's kind of like if you think of the Christian celebration of Easter, everything leads to Easter. Everything for the Jewish people led to Passover. And Passover was a yearly religious celebration where all the Jews from around the world would come together and they would remember God's grace, that God freed them and God saved them. And the way they would remember that is that they would have the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice one lamb for the whole nation. This one spotless lamb allows God to pass over the sins of the people. So Deuteronomy 16 puts it this way, Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock, a spotless lamb, at the place the Lord will choose for a dwelling for his name. And so every year the high priest would sacrifice one spotless lamb in the place of the nation. And the cool thing about this is that God chose Jerusalem to be the place where his name dwelt, so they built the temple there. And so each year, a lamb would be sacrificed in the temple for the nation of Israel. And so what John is doing, he's being very purposeful when he's writing this, right? He's trying to show us that Jesus is supposed to be associated with the Passover lamb. That the same way this one lamb takes the sins of the whole nation, Jesus is the true and better spotless lamb. And that really the whole Old Testament has foreshadowed this coming. John himself, even at the beginning of the book, the beginning of John, when we first started this series, John 1, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus, as the presence of God on earth, the only spotless human who ever lived without stain of sin, will be offered to Rome as a sacrifice. And he's actually going to be offered by Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas will, tr- will try Jesus and will bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And he will tell Pilate, Jesus is an enemy of the state. And Pilate will put Jesus to death where? In the city of Jerusalem. And so Caiaphas, even though he is an imposter high priest, even though he is an evil man, God still uses him for good and uses him for his function. Because he is the one who leads Jesus to his death like an innocent lamb to be slaughtered. And this reminds us about what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. So Isaiah actually prophesied about this. And Isaiah wrote, But he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The point that I'm trying to make, the point that the Bible makes over and over again, is that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. And John is trying to show us this, that this has always been God's plan. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to the need for a true once and for all sacrifice. Jesus, as the Savior of the world, had to suffer for us. He has to bear the consequences of our sin. Because the whole point of the Bible is not that we are the hero, but that Jesus Christ is the hero of humanity's story. And he sacrifices himself for the world. Jesus, as the true shepherd, becomes a sheep led to slaughter. Jesus, who was the rightful judge, becomes judged. Jesus, who should have been receiving the offerings of the people of Israel, who should have been praised by the people, is offered by his own people to Rome as sacrifice. And I just want us to take a moment to feel the immense weight of that. Jesus stands in our place. Jesus takes all of our pain, takes all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin, and he puts it on himself. And he takes our place because of his never-ending, never-failing, perfect love for us. And Jesus' sacrifice is so powerful, and John makes this point in the text, that it doesn't just save Israel, it saves the entire world. So in the Old Testament, in that sacrificial system, the spotless lamb only worked, it only substituted for the sins of the people of Israel. But Jesus, in his death, frees, his, frees the whole world from sin and evil. And this was always God's plan as well. God becoming human, God becoming a sacrifice himself, unleashes his grace to all people around the world. This tells us that Jesus died for people of all nationalities, of all ethnicities, of all cultures, and of all languages. He took the punishment for all of humanity to bring us peace. And John can write this. This is the cool part of when you think of John writing this text. He was leading a church. And in that church, there were Greeks and Jews. There was Syrians and people of all different nationalities. There was servants and masters. There were women and men. There were young and old. And they were all worshiping Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior together. And so when John writes this text, he's not writing it from a place of, oh yeah, this is a fictional thing that Jesus has done. He's living the gospel out in his community where he sees everyone worshiping Jesus as the Savior. And then John, later in his life, will actually write the book of Revelation, which talks about the future of our, of, our, of our humanity. And he writes that all people will worship Jesus, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and might forever and ever. That is the gospel. That Jesus Christ is the once and for all sacrifice and savior for all people in all places for all time. And that those who simply believe in him become a part of his family forever. Amen? So how does our passage end? Let's look at the remaining verses. So look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And so the end of this text tells us that the plan has been set in motion. They're ready to offer Jesus as a sacrifice to Rome. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are actively trying to find and arrest Jesus to offer him up. And then the text tells us that the Passover itself is about to begin. So you see all this imagery. John is trying to tell us everything is leading up to this moment. As the actual Passover is is starting, so is Jesus's. He's preparing himself to sacrifice himself. But I do want to note that one of the interesting things is that as the Passover begins, it's the same leaders that just plotted Jesus' death in secret. They then come in the public to help run the Passover. They're the ones, when it talks about people purifying and cleaning themselves, they were the ones that would have done that for the people. They're the ones who are preparing the temple for thousands of Jews to come and celebrate God. And so this closing shows us the pure hypocrisy of the religious leaders, that privately they are planning the murder of Jesus, they're planning someone's death, but publicly they are serving and leading people in worship. And so I just want to recap the passage. I went too far. I want to recap the passage. So first we saw many people believe in Jesus as the Messiah because of his power to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then others ran and told the religious leaders out of fear. The religious leaders, they got scared and they thought they were going to lose their, their nation and their power because Rome will view them, Jesus, as a revolutionary. Caiaphas rebuked them and then created a plan to offer Jesus to Rome as a sacrifice. And then Caiaphas, unknown to himself, proclaims Jesus as the Savior of the world. And then the religious leaders lead people in worship as they prepare the Passover. And so how does this text apply to us? Well, I think we probably have more in common with Caiaphas than we'd like to admit. Similar to Caiaphas, it's easy for us, it's easy for humans to seek safety and security in earthly things. It's easy for us to seek safety and security in careers, in politics, in wealth, in our own health. You know, that's all Caiaphas was doing. Caiaphas was just being practical and pragmatic. He's looking to Rome as the most powerful nation in the world, the nation that he serves as a part of his job. 
He's looking at all of his friends and his family that believe Jesus is a false rabbi. And what he does is just the normal move. Yeah, I'm going to give up Jesus that way I stay in power. Just think about this. If, if Caiaphas was to follow Jesus, that means he would have become an enemy of Rome. If Caiaphas was to follow Jesus, it means that his family and his friends would have called him a traitor. Caiaphas following Jesus would have mean he, would, he had to give up his power, his prominence, and his positions. It would have been a life-altering decision. And sometimes I wonder, if I'm honest, what would I have done if I was in Caiaphas' position? What would I have done if I had all those pressures on me to give Jesus up? Would I have done the comfortable and convenient thing? Would I have looked to Rome to save me instead of Jesus? You know, most humans, I think most of us here, we know in our hearts that we need something to save us. We have fears, we have guilt, we have shame, we have insecurities that eat us up on the inside. And so all of us are looking for a savior. We're looking for something to make us whole. And all of us are looking to feel secure. We want to feel secure. And so the question for us is not, do I need a savior? The question that we really need to ask is, who is or what is my savior? What are we seeking to be our once and for all sacrifice? Are we looking to our money, our 401k, to give us security? Are we looking to our political party and our advocacy to give us security? Are we looking to our career and our position at work to give us security? Is it our popularity and our friendships that give us security in this life? What are we looking at to make us whole? What are we looking at to find our security and salvation? So I just want to ask you, think about what are the earthly things that you are tempted to put your security in? What, what is the thing that you think in the back of your mind, if I had this, I'm good. If I have this one thing, I'd be whole and complete. Now, as you think about that question, I want you to know that finding our security in earthly things is actually pretty natural and normal. It's normal to look to the things right in front of us to find comfort, convenience, safety, and security. We're just looking at what's right in front of our faces. And so it's easy to look for security in our job, our family, our politics, our money. Because the fact of the matter is God did create it and these things are good and can be used for good. But it's the moment that we say, these earthly things complete me. These temporary things save me. That's the problem. Because we all know this. No amount of money, no political party, no job, no amount of popularity can take away the sin, guilt, shame, and insecurities that we feel on, on the inside. Earthly things, earthly leaders, earthly kingdoms will always crumble. History tells us this time and time again. History tells us that Israel itself, which Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are trying to save, 40 years later, Rome comes in and destroys them, and Israel crumbles. And then you know what? 
Rome, 400 years later, gets destroyed by the barbarians. Over and over again, nations rise and nations fall. Economies come and economies go. Housing markets crash. And he offers himself for the many. The story of the Bible and the story of our world is that we need saving and Jesus saved himself for us. Jesus comes to earth to be the once and for all sacrifice. And that means that there's something more to this life. There's a greater story that we are part of and eternity is at stake. And so while everything around us crumbles, Jesus does not. Jesus remains faithful. Jesus remains strong. And so how do we respond to Jesus as our great high priest in our once and for all sacrifice? Well, I, I want to read what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this in chapter 10. For Christ entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He didn't offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once and for all at the end of ages to put away and destroy sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Jesus has secured your salvation through his sacrifice. Your sin, your guilt, your shame, your insecurities have been purchased by Jesus. And so he takes our unfaithfulness, and you know what he says to us? He says, I am faithful. He takes our evil, our sin, the wrongs that we commit, and you know what he tells us? I am righteous for you. He takes our guilt, our shame, and he tells us, enjoy my freedom. And ultimately, Jesus takes our cowardice and he tells us, here, take my courage. And so the story of the Bible is not us earning and working and putting our security in temporary things. The story of the Bible is us putting our faith in Jesus because he has done the work for us and he's still doing the work in us to this day. And so if you are not a Christian, your response should simply to be, believe in him. To believe that Jesus is your once and for all sacrifice. And if, you are Christian, if you're a Christian today, if you're hearing this message, the response is pretty simple. Rest in Jesus. Rest in the work he has done for you, and then rejoice in the sacrifice he has made. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior. That you sent Jesus to be the once and for all sacrifice for humanity. There's something deep inside of us, there's something deep inside every single human that knows we need someone to save us. There's something deep inside of us that knows we need one person to die for the many. And Lord, we thank you that your son Jesus was that. 
that your son Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve in order to give us new life, in order to pour out his Holy, your Holy Spirit on us. And so, Lord, we just pray that today that we would simply rest in the work that you have done. And that we would rejoice that you have given us something that is unshakable. And that if we put our faith in you, even though the world around us crumbles, we can have assurance of faith in you. I pray that all of us would be strengthened in that today. That we would be strengthened in our faith, knowing that you have accomplished your work and you will accomplish your work in us. And that we can simply rejoice and sing your praises for what you have done. It's in your name we Well, congrats, you made it through the whole sermon. We just want to say thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. Again, this is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. If you want to connect with us, you can do that by going to our website at resurrectionchurch.com. There you will find all the ways to worship with us, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, connect with us through a group or event, find a place to serve, and give financially. We're so thankful for each and every one of you, and our hope is that you will continue to live life with Jesus this week.